Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Well, if you want to find a way to sell tickets to the FIFA Women's World Cup, then you could not do anything better than have the home team win the first match of the tournament. What a performance. Now, to be honest, did you know who Hannah Wilkinson was before last night? I'll be honest and say I didn't. Like hundreds of thousands of others, I paid only passing attention to the event and especially only passing attention to the New Zealand team because... I knew they'd kept on losing most of their recent matches until they finally put a couple of goals past Vietnam a week or so ago. But my wife is a sporty spice, and while to be honest, I would have watched the open golf had I had control of the remote, I really, really enjoyed that match against Norway last night and the way that New Zealand not just won, but I reckon actually dominated the match. A pity they couldn't make it 2-0 because of the missed penalty, but hey, in the long-term scheme of things, are we really going to complain? I guess only if progression to the next stage depends on goal difference. Already that game in Wellington next Tuesday against the Philippines is sold out. I know that because my family there tried and failed to get tickets. And now I'm sure there's going to be a rush for seats uh, at the game in Dunedin on Sunday week against Switzerland. So after all the distraction in the tournament lead up about unequal prize money and the wearing of armbands to promote various political causes and the reported poor ticket sales in this country, it was a pleasure to just watch a sports event where the only thing that mattered was the game. Wow, and what a game it was. Long may that continue. Now, why was Matu Reed on home detention when he killed two people in Auckland yesterday? Well, here are two words which played a big role. Cultural report. What this guy did to his girlfriend in September of 2021 was horrific. You've probably read this already, but let's go over it again. He kicked her in the stomach. He seized her throat for 10 seconds so she couldn't breathe, then slapped and punched her. Among her injuries, she had a black eye and a fractured bone in her neck from where he'd strangled her. He already had a conviction for assault and was on supervision when he did this. The judge, Stephen Bonner, started at three years in jail then discounted 25% for his guilty plea and then another nine months for his background factors which were outlined in the cultural report. They included deprivation as a child, physical abuse and having to run away from home at an early age. So the 20-month jail term, which he finally arrived at, under government policy, is then converted to five months of Home D. The probation officer assessed this guy as being at low risk of re-offending. One wonders how experienced was the probation officer. Was that assessment reviewed and thoroughly checked out? Two people have lost their lives at the hands of a murderer because of our very soft justice system. Is that good enough? Of course not. 
The government policy of Home D being available for any jail sentence of under two years surely now must be reassessed. How many other Matu Reeds are lurking in the community? A government policy to reduce the prison population through initiatives like the Home D option was inevitably going to lead to an outcome like this. In a week when the government had been rolling out new law and order policy on an almost daily basis earlier in the week, there was something tragically ironical in what happened yesterday. But surely, surely now the deeds of Matu Reed will change our sentencing policy. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, media censorship is alive and well in this country. Frankly, it is both disturbing and disgusting. What's worse is that the editors of newspapers seem to be jumping the so-called Chinese wall between editorial and commercial. You know, back in the old days, the editors were given the space around the advertising for the journalists to write and report their news. The content of the advertising was not part of an editor's remit. That was the job of the commercial department. But something has happened. Editors now appear to have a say on what advertising appears. That's obvious in some email discussions seen by Bob McCoskery at Family First, where the editors and CEOs at NZME, Stuff and Allied Press, who run the Otago Daily Times, have colluded to stop Family First running full-page ads in six major daily newspapers uh, back on Wednesday of this week. It's to launch, or was to launch, their What is a Woman campaign. But at the 11th hour, the three companies all decided to pull the ad and the email trail, which Bob McCoskery has made public, includes one saying, quote, the editors and CEOs are speaking now, unquote. Also in the email trail, a note on Wednesday from the group sales manager at Stuff saying, quote, the campaign doesn't align with the values of Stuff, which if you read and know Stuff, you won't be surprised at all about but this was only two days after a marketing strategist at Stuff had told Family First that the ad had been approved and was good to go. I mean, it's a staggering decision, really, considering the economic times that media companies are in. Full-page ads are good revenue earners for these struggling media companies, yet three companies turned one down across six newspapers. A full-page ad in the New Zealand Herald is worth $16,835. In the Post in Wellington, it's $5,184. In the Press, $4,544. And in the Southland Times, $3,328. Now, I couldn't find the rate for the ODT or the Bay of Plenty Times, where Family First also wanted to publish. So what I'm saying is that the rack rate for Family First full-page ad would pay two or three journalists' wages for a week on most of the papers, and a lot more than that at the Herald. This was money, real money, the companies rejected because, well, I don't know why. Are they being bullied by Chenille Lal too? NZME has form on this issue. Last year they wouldn't take ads from the group Stand Up For Women. Frankly, media censorship in news reporting and editorial is bad enough. But when it moves into what products and ideas can and cannot be advertised, you are in dangerous, censorious territory. Do any of these companies plan to prevent any political parties advertising in the lead-up to the election? Because stuff, 
I can tell you right now, the ACT Party does not align with your values either. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, can I give kudos once again to social issues researcher Lindsay Mitchell, who has unearthed some figures about welfare dependency in this country, which frankly are just awful. Lindsay wrote yesterday about her latest findings, chief among them, that the number of children now dependent on a benefit in New Zealand is the highest since Labour came to power in 2017. There are now 211,617 children in households where a state benefit is the main source of income. Nearly 60,000 children are looked after by a solo parent who has been on a benefit for more than a year. As Lindsay Mitchell reports, long-term welfare dependency increases the likelihood of a child being abused and neglected, leading to a life of crime. Remember the cultural report? Yesterday's Auckland killer Matu Reed had at his sentencing in 2021. And then there's the job seeker support benefit that Lindsay Mitchell also writes about. In June, that number went up by 3,000 in just one month. How come? There are jobs everywhere in this country. And the number of people on a health condition or disability benefit is now 73,854, 3,000 more than a year ago. The vast majority of these people are benefit dependent due to psychiatric or psychological conditions. There's been a 28% rise in this category in five years. All up, 11.2% of the working age population, the working age population rather, is dependent on a main benefit. That's 7,000 more than a year ago. The welfare train is up and running and showing no signs of stopping. Thank you again, Lindsay Mitchell, for pointing out the numbers. But boy, they are just downright depressing. Now, we have talked here before about Nigel Farage, the Brexit man, and his banking woes. But now... It's all confirmed. It's all out in the open. Farage has had his account at Coots Bank closed because the bank didn't like his political views. Farage even obtained the dossier which Coots wrote about him, which cites his views on Brexit, his friendship with Donald Trump and his support of Novak Djokovic as reasons why this prestigious bank for wealthy individuals did not want Nigel Farage as a customer. The bank described Farage as a disingenuous grifter with xenophobic, chauvinistic and racist views. Once he'd paid off a mortgage he had with the bank, they closed his account. But Farage has found some friends in high places. The British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has said that shutting someone's bank account because of their political views was wrong and that free speech is the cornerstone of a democracy. And now the British government is looking at putting extra conditions on banking licences and a banking licence could be stripped from an institution if a customer's right to free speech is compromised. The boss of NatWest, which uh, owns the prestigious Coots Bank, has been asked to explain uh, what's going on 
to the Treasury, which uh, issues the bank licences. Nigel Farage, who wouldn't normally have too many friends in the Tory government, has praised the swift intervention because, as he says, the politicians could see the bankers coming for them too at some stage in the future. And the NatWest Bank seems to forget it is still 38% owned by the British taxpayer after it was bailed out in the GFC all those years ago. Nigel Farage has made a very important stand here. Everybody needs a bank account, of course. For a bank to close an account based on a customer's political views is very, very dangerous. I would like to think that sort of thing does not happen in this country. But you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if it does. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Now, there seems to be, among those educated and working in law, criminology and psychology, a general acceptance that putting people in prison for crimes of violence should be avoided if possible. Uh, This government agrees. So almost every day we read of people committing crimes of violence, whether it be assault or aggravated robbery or a ram raid. And then in court, the judge starts discounting the sentence. There is this reason and there's that reason, often including the cultural report, uh, which incidentally the boss of the Corrections Association, the Prison Officers Trade Union, says are often general in nature and we know are often written by people like the mongrel mob boss Harry Tam. And then there is this policy that says when a prison sentence gets to be under two years, it can convert to home detention. This Labour government came to power saying they wanted the prison population decreased. It's it's one of the few policies, maybe the only one, they've actually been able to achieve. The prison population is down 20%. But what else has happened? Well, serious assaults have increased 121%. Cases of police opposing bail have increased from 2061 to 5,084. And just for good measure, an increase in the number of people absconding from electronic monitoring is up 97%. Those who say we can't arrest and imprison our way out of crime must look at those numbers and surely realise that being soft on crime just does not work. Isn't it about time we rethought this issue? You know, there's an old saying that you can't commit crime and you can't kill people if you're in prison. The figures do not lie. Keeping people who should be in prison out of prison has become an unmitigated disaster. No wonder law and order is now the second most important issues for voters for this election after the cost of living. After what happened yesterday, it's become even more important. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, somehow, a country founded on the work of Christian missionaries 200 years or so ago is now having, it seems, an all-out attack on Christian politicians. Not that many people go to church anymore, and in the 2018 census, only 37% of us identified as Christians. But apparently, 
being a politician with strong and identified Christian beliefs is now a serious liability. So how did it come to this? I raise all this in the light of some polling which ACT have done in the Tamaki seat in East Auckland, where they've put their deputy leader, Brooke Van Velden, up as the candidate to stand against the long-serving National Party man, Simon O'Connor. Van Velden, who did the legwork for the euthanasia legislation for David Seymour and is strongly pro-abortion, is, according to the polling, neck and neck with O'Connor. Simon O'Connor is still strongly religious. He's a former trainee priest who was socially conservative, having voted against both assisted dying and these very liberal abortion laws that we have now. In other words, Simon O'Connor believes in the sanctity of life and, heaven forbid, the importance of the family, which surely are the most important values any human being can have. But that in 2023 appears to be a political problem. In these times of an escalating cost-of-living crisis and rampant law and order issues, why is having an MP with strong moral values an issue? Even Christopher Luxon himself, a man with well-known strong Christian beliefs and conservative views on many social issues, effectively disciplined Simon O'Connor for his support of the overturning of Roe versus Wade in the US Supreme Court. That says two things about Christopher Luxon. He is not a conviction politician, and he's a control freak. In the National Party of old, an MP with an independent streak would be applauded. But somehow, the national leader finds the religious man in Tamaki a liability. The saddest thing of all is that if National lose Tamaki, which is the famous old seat of Robert Muldoon, it looks like they won't be shedding many tears. This has been the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on Reality Check Radio. Correspondence is most welcome through inbox at realitycheck.radio or my text is 2057. Do enjoy your weekend. We will talk again on Monday. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts, 1 p.m. Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now.